Hello everyone, welcome to the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I'll be your host for this episode. Today's episode is one most people have heard of, and it's one I've been wanting to do for a while. It is yet another case out of Florida, as I've learned that state is giving California a run for its money as the true crime capital of America. But before we get into the episode, let's quick cover the business side of things. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. You can also find me on X and Instagram at true underscore blue underscore crime. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. Cholrophobia is the medical term for the fear of clowns. Many people across the world have a small to total fear of someone dressed in a colorful costume, wig, wearing makeup, and sporting a big round red nose. Just by reading the description of a clown, you're probably picturing either a run-of-the-mill circus clown, Ronald McDonald, or possibly Stephen King's Pennywise from It. While some versions of clowns can be traced back to ancient Egypt, the modern circus clown is roughly 200 years old. Joseph Grimaldi is credited with introducing the extravagant outfits, white makeup with exaggerated facial expressions, and use of colorful wigs to define the modern circus clown. His transformation of the clown image has been immortalized by the fact that to this day, clowns in modern traditional attire are called joeys. People have numerous reasons for being afraid of clowns, with many people citing multiple reasons for the phobia. The anonymity of the person in the makeup is alarming to many people, and this comes from a deeply rooted psychological response. Human interaction, especially with strangers, relies on trust. It is only the last several thousand years of our evolution that we have developed into a society of law and order. But the existence of war and true crime is proof that deep down, we as a species are still dangerous to one another. When you meet someone for the first time, you read a lot into that person as a safety mechanism. Things such as physical size, body language, and facial expressions can convey threat levels, and a clown costume hides many of those elements. In addition, the portrayal of clowns as instruments of horror in pop culture only add to the fear and distrust. Clowns of It and various other horror movies and TV shows hide behind their costumes and makeup to commit acts of extreme violence, and many people connect the clown image to similar images such as Jason's hockey mask from the Friday the 13th series. But when a real-life person dressed as a clown commits real violence against another person, Despite the rarity of such acts, it cements the idea in many people's minds that clowns are dangerous. A 1990 homicide dubbed the Killer Clown Case was one such instance, and it would take almost 30 years to catch the murderer. This is the case of Marlene Warren. Marlene May Warren was born Marlene McKinnon on April 15, 1950 in Mount Clemens, Michigan. While not much is known about her life before that fateful day in May that would push this case into the annals of true crime, it appears she was married sometime before 1990 with a man with the last name of Aarons. Her second marriage would be to Michael Warren, and in 1990, the couple were living with Marlene's two children, one of them being 21-year-old Joseph Aarons. The family lived in an upper-class neighborhood in Wellington, Florida, outside West Palm Beach. 
Their home was one of a hundred or so houses in a division that included an airstrip for private planes and a golf course running through the development. The Warrens had made their money in rental homes and a used car dealership and enjoyed the benefits that came from upper-class living. But in 1990, the relationship between Marlene and Michael was rocky, and there were rumors that Michael was having an affair. While a wealthy lifestyle, dubious business practices, and a romantic scandal are the benchmarks of too many bad made-for-TV movies, it was the events that unfolded on May 26, 1990, that propelled this story into one of the most talked-about true crime stories of all time. On the morning of that day, the doorbell rang, and Marlene headed to the door with her son Joseph following her. When she opened the door, they were greeted by a person in full clown costume, complete with makeup and an orange wig. The clown was holding two helium mylar balloons and a bouquet of flowers. Marlene supposedly said, how sweet or oh how pretty, as she took the balloons and flowers into her hands. One of the balloons had the words, you're the greatest on it, and the other had Snow White and Seven Dwarves. As Marlene said her final words, the suspect at the door raised a gun and fired it once into Marlene's face before turning around and calmly walking back to their car that was parked in front of the house. The car was described as a white Chrysler with no license plates. Joseph had several friends over, and they called 911 and stayed with Marlene as first responders rushed to the scene. Marlene was still alive and taken to the hospital, but died from her wounds two days later. The use of the clown costume, the delivery of the gifts, and the exposed love triangle created an immediate media following of the case. It was dubbed the Killer Clown Case, and investigators knew they had a tough case, but none of them probably thought the case would take almost 30 years to obtain some level of justice. One of the main issues with cases that are so popular is there isn't much information about the victim or the crime scene. Desire the salacious side of the case, so the media focuses on the shiny parts and often don't bother with the background information. As a result, I don't have much to work with in regard to the crime scene, but I'll still try to dissect the crime scene as it was in 1990. Just like in our last episode involving Daniel Ott, police are going to look at this murder as a targeted murder. It was clear that someone picked out the Warren home to target for the crime, and it's most likely that Marlene was a targeted victim. It's easy to say that now, especially with what we will learn later, but police at the time also had to consider other alternatives. The killing appeared targeted, but could have been random, as there are killers who have attacked random targets for no reason other than just the thrill of the kill. But the victimology of this case is going to push investigators down a more common and likely motive, which is actually a combination of motives, love and greed. And so this is where, again, not only do I try to take people back in time to a certain degree with when this murder has occurred, 1990 for some people, it doesn't sound that long ago. Uh, to others, the, my younger listeners, they probably think that's ancient history. But you know, 1990 was now we're approaching 32 years ago, and so things are going to be very different. Uh, we still we do have DNA, but it's pretty much in its infancy. There's not much they can do with with DNA like from hair or uh, touch DNA or anything like that. So. We have a very different approach to this crime scene, and there's not going to be a lot of actual physical evidence in this case. You have a person dressed as a clown coming to the door and giving somebody balloons and flowers. And I think this serves two purposes. One, it has the person let their guard down a certain degree. It looks like a a really funny or lighthearted 
delivery approach. Obviously not if you're afraid of clowns, but for somebody who's not afraid of clowns, they might you know, laugh about the fact that a clown is bringing them balloons and flowers and might be a little romantic or, or friendly gesture. So instantly, instead of you know some guy standing there in a trench coat with a, a ski mask on, for one thing, anybody looking through a peephole or through a window is more likely to open the door for a clown holding flowers and balloons than they are for the guy in the trench coat. So one, it's going to let the guard down. The person's going to answer the door. Two, now that the person has to collect these flowers and balloons, their hands are going to be full. So if something were to go wrong, there's going to be a, a split second or two longer in which that person who's committing the crime has to act. And it can be something as simple as forgetting to take the safety off of the gun or not having a round in the chamber. The difference of somebody being able to slam a door shut in, in that time period that they realize there's now a threat. But if their hands are full, their brain has to go through an extra thought process of having to either drop the items or set them down or, or whatever it might be. But it just it slows down the other person's ability to react to the situation. So you do have these flowers, you have these balloons, we're going to talk about those in a little bit, but what you don't have, at least in any of the readings, is a recovered cartridge case, which means it's likely this was a revolver where the cartridge case is going to stay in. You will probably have a bullet, I don't know what type of condition it's going to be in, that's going to be recovered from the victim in this case. But other than that, you're not going to have a lot of evidence other than these two items, this balloons and these flowers that are left behind at the scene. You do have a lot of eyewitness testimony. You've got Joseph and his friends that are over that see the murder happen. One article said that Joseph and a friend of his hopped into a car to follow the the shooter. I don't know if the shooter ended up losing them or, or, or if this was that article was wrong, but ultimately you're just going to have some eyewitnesses that are going to say hey, there's this clown that delivered this stuff, and then they calmly walked back to their car. Their car was a white Chrysler LeBaron, no plates, it drove off, and that's what investigators had to work with. As we talked about in the Daniel Ott case, it's a very interesting crime from the standpoint that this appears to be the one and only intention of the suspect. There was no burglary, no uh, attempt at robbery, there was no any other crime other than this obviously planned delivery with somebody in a disguise, most likely targeting Marlene. And so, again, while investigators are going to have to look at other potential reasons that somebody might want to kill Marlene, to include some random person that is mentally unstable, that is going to dress like a clown, and it's not a Batman villain, uh, that is out to commit violence and, and is hiding their identity, they, they're going to look into what's going on with Marlene and her life at this time and realize it makes more sense that this is a targeted killing than a random act of violence. So again, not a lot of information about the crime scene. Investigators aren't going to have a lot of physical evidence to work with in this case, but they're going to have a lot of eyewitness testimony and some stuff to follow up with that's going to give them a lot of circumstantial evidence in this case. And so we'll get into what's going on in the life of the Warrens at this point. They owned a used car dealership at the time of the murders, and according to some sources, they had amassed a large rental real estate portfolio. 
So by some estimates, the couple was worth well over a million dollars at the time of the murder. And while their debt status was unknown, they owned several million dollars worth of assets. So again, sometimes people can own a whole bunch of stuff, but also be in a lot of debt. So I don't know if these, if the Warrens were flush with cash at this point in their life, or if they had a ton of outstanding loans for the businesses and for these rental properties. So it just looked like they had a, a, a lot of cash. But at least from the house they're living in, the neighborhood they're living in, they're, they're, they seem to be doing well. So we're going to assume that financially they're pretty well off. And it's alleged that in the spring of 1990, Michael, who was age 38 at the time, was having an affair with one of his employees, a 27-year-old named Sheila Keen. Witnesses would later tell investigators that there were numerous observed heated discussions and arguments between Marlene and Michael in the months leading up to the murder, and at least once, Marlene had publicly accused Sheila of having an affair with Michael. Again, we have a family business. This is a car dealership owned by the Warrens, and and again, there's not a lot of background information. This may have been something that Michael had built from the ground up before he ever met Marlene, maybe it's something they built together, this this used car dealership and this rental portfolio. But ultimately, at this point, of, she's murdered. They're married, so this is a marital asset, this used car dealership. This is an employee that is being paid by the family, and she is having an affair with, with Michael, or at least it's alleged that she's having an affair with Michael at the time of the murders. And you've got witnesses with Marlene coming into this business. Now this is different than somebody who works at a thousand person company and they suspect that their husband is having an affair with, with a secretary or with a coworker or something like that. This is, this is a, again, a family business. So Marlene's probably been to this place several times. She probably knows Sheila pretty well as an employee. And so there's definitely eyewitnesses who have seen friction, who there's probably rumors going around this car dealership about this affair, because no matter how hard people try to hide things like affairs or secret relationships, even when there isn't an affair or cheating involved, sometimes when it's just a office romance that the people don't want the drama of anybody knowing they're dating, it doesn't take long for people to pick up on little smiles, little extra glances a little t extra time or talks together uh, people pick up on that stuff pretty quick so it's it's very likely that whatever michael and sheila thought about how they were keeping this relationship secret it, it really wasn't that secret and so some believe marlene was preparing to leave michael and that she would be seeking a large chunk of the couple's wealth as part of the divorce proceedings so the elements now of this story are going to point to a motive we've seen many times before. With Marlene dead, Michael would be free of the possible financial losses and obligations, and he was also free to pursue a relationship with the younger woman in his life. So on the morning of the murder, Michael's reported to be in a car with other people driving to a racetrack, and therefore he could not be the person in the clown costume. So we talked about this clown costume as providing some anonymity. Anonymity is great, for the suspect, it's not always great for the other people in the victim's life because if you can't prove who was in the clown costume, you can't rule anybody out. So Michael, of course, is going to have this alibi. He's going to be with other people at the time of the murder. So he can be ruled out as the person in the clown costume. But his investigators are going to take a very close look at Sheila and they're going to find evidence of her involvement in the crime rather quickly. And they started with the balloons 
these these two mylar balloons that were delivered to Marlene right before she was shot. One of these balloons was only available at one location in the area, which was a Publix store, and I think it was like a half mile from Sheila's home. So with this, uh, you know, officers don't have to go to every Publix store in the West Palm Beach area. They just have to go to the, old, the one that sells this certain balloon, and they're going to find an employee there that remembers filling the balloons for Sh Sheila just hours before the murder. And... And so right there, you're going to have this connection. Now, we're going to talk about it a little bit. Is it the slam dunk best connection you can have? No, but it's a pretty good one. And then we're also going to talk about this clown costume. Now, the use of the costume both hurt and aided the investigation. As we mentioned, the costume, makeup, and wig was designed to hide the identity of the person to include key demographic filters such as age, race, and gender. So this anonymity meant that few people could be excluded and regular tactics such as witness lineups and composite sketches could not be used. It, I mean, criminals will use all types of disguises or just simple barriers to identification such as ski masks, uh, nylon stockings, Halloween masks, whatever they might be to try to hide stuff. But this full-on clown costume clown costumes are designed to exaggerate certain features a lot of times they'll have exaggerated waistlines using some type of a prop inside of the costume the exaggerated size of the feet uh, i'm not sure if this clown was wearing oversized shoes or not but just in general a clown costume the wig the the prosthetic red nose all of that kind of stuff is designed to hide the identity of who's inside if it's being used for something like this for the crime the white pasty makeup i mean you can put that on somebody of any race and it's going to hide potentially the race of the person so yeah we're not seeing their physical size truly we're not seeing contours of the body that might indicate uh, male or female we're not seeing things such as age and you can't do a composite sketch of somebody who's all done in makeup and, and with a big red nose because they're obviously not going to look like that in their regular life. So this is going to create problems with eyewitness identification. However, the costume itself is going to leave a trail for investigators just like the balloons. So they go to the local costume shops and they are able to locate an employee that stayed on the evening before the murder at just about closing time, Sheila came into the shop and demanded she be allowed to buy a clown costume. The employee tried to convince the woman to come back the following day because it would take time to get the right size and complete the sale, but Sheila insisted that she needed the costume that night. So the information provided by these two employees that put Sheila purchasing the balloons and costume, believed to have been used in the murder, led to investigators seeking and being granted a search warrant for Sheila's apartment. While the costume and murder weapon were not found, orange fibers consistent with the clown wig were located. Marlene's son and another friend described the killer's vehicle as a white Chrysler LeBaron. A few days after the murder, an abandoned car matching that description was found in a nearby parking lot. Orange fibers recovered from the car were believed to have been from the clown wig. The car was traced back to a rental company in the area. The last person to rent the car told investigators that they returned the car keys to Michael Warren's car dealership because they believed the dealership was a drop-off location for the rental car. An ad for the dealership apparently had a logo for the rental car company that backed up the renter story. So there's a lot of places, if you get outside of anywhere that has a major airport, that rental companies don't necessarily have 
designated locations where you go and, and pick up your car or drop it off. And, and just same with U-Haul. There are places that are 100% a U-Haul rental place. There's other places that are storage locations or even sometimes gas stations that will rent U-Hauls on a contract with U-Haul. So apparently whoever rented this car, I think it was for something like a payless auto rental, something like that, saw an ad for the Warrens used car dealership that had either a logo that was very similar or was the same as this Payless. And it would make sense that potentially a used car dealership could be renting out cars for Payless and taking cars back. So it sounds as if this person dropped off the keys for their rental car because they wanted to get out of their contract early. It was a little confusing reading how this all shook out, but basically, because of this rental contract mistake where these keys were delivered to the used car dealership, Michael and Sheila were able to gain access to this white Chrysler LeBaron that was going to be more difficult to trace back to them. Ultimately, it would be, but I'm sure at the time that they all of a sudden have access to a vehicle that's somewhat anonymous to them, this is going to be green light for them to conduct this plan and eventually that's what prosecutors are going to say has happened is this car keys got dropped off they realized there was this chance to use a vehicle that would be difficult to trace back to them to commit this murder so that michael could get out from underneath a potential divorce and as investigators built the case back they realized no now the car links to them the costume links to sheila the balloons linked to sheila and even to follow up more with the car, investigators learned that after the car keys were mistakenly dropped off, an employee told Michael about the car and gave him the keys. According to witnesses, three people, including Michael and Sheila, drove to a location to recover the vehicle and had possession of it during the time it was used for the murder of Marlene Warren. So again, Sheila's been linked to the costume and the balloons. Michael and Sheila have been linked to the car that was believed to have been the one used by the killer to arrive and leave the home and in that car after it was found abandoned are orange clown fiber things from the wig these were also found in sheila's apartment so we're connecting a lot of dots with this crime but what we have unfortunately is a case filled with circumstantial evidence police have a strong motive they've got opportunity at this point but the means to carry out the crime were still this work in progress because despite searches of Sheila's apartment, despite locating the getaway car, the costume itself and the murder weapon were never located. Now, I did read one article that said the costume was located, but I think somebody just jumped to some conclusion there. Because from what I saw, even late stages of this investigation, they were still looking for this, this clown costume. So the sheer fact that Sheila both purchased the clown costume the night before and the balloons hours before the murder, and these are the ones found after the fatal delivery, these are not enough to pursue a capital murder case against the woman. And we have to understand this is Florida. They're looking at first degree murder. You need an airtight case. A jury has to decide whether or not they're going to have a person executed. And is there anything illegal about buying or renting a clown costume? No. Is there anything illegal about buying balloons? No. Is there anything illegal about borrowing a rental car? I guess somewhat to a certain degree, but there's no illegal acts that she's committing. They're just acts that 
occur with a high level of circumstance and suspicion about being involved in the murder but there's nothing that directly links her they don't have the pun intended here the smoking gun they don't have the murder weapon that was used to kill marlene if they had found that at sheila's apartment all day long it's a first degree murder charge it's a capital murder case they're going to trial what the the defense is going to obviously say just because she purchased a clown costume and balloons that happen to match the ones used that's not direct evidence anybody could have done this so i mean obviously the defense is going to have to work around the fact that these balloons one of the balloons was only sold at a certain location at Publix, but it's just it's a it's a very difficult case when you don't have something saying i can put you at the scene of the crime i can i can say that these balloons the ones that were delivered were in fact the ones that sheila purchased not just they they happen to be the same they are in fact the ones that were purchased and there's also going to be some early problems with the case too that we have to take into account one of joseph's friends told police they believe the killer was a man and not a woman and they were 100 percent sure about this so while this can be explained away using cognitive bias it also could have been true and a defense attorney would certainly use a semi-independent witness to convince the jury that there's plenty of reasonable doubt and could gain an acquittal for sheila as a result so this would be a very powerful statement for a witness to talk about on or, or during the trial. If you're able to put somebody from Sheila, uh, from Marlene's life onto the witness stand in front of a jury and have them say, I 100% believe that the person I saw who killed Marlene was a man, then it can't be Sheila if the jury's gonna believe this person. And why would this person have a reason to lie? Again, could the prosecution do everything they can to say, hey, some people just, when they see something, their mind goes to most people who commit acts of violence with a gun are men, so this had to be a man, so the brain fills that gap in. They can't identify whether it's a man or a woman because of the clown costume, and they've convinced themselves that it was a man. Maybe, but again, do you want to take that to trial in a capital murder case and have the jury get deadlocked or stuck on the fact that one person believes this is a man and if it was and if anybody believes that person they cannot convict sheila of this crime because she's obviously not a man so it's it's one of those cases where even though there's it's a really really strong case it's not airtight there's still issues with the case and so they are going to continue to try to gather more evidence they're going to sit back they're going to hope that somebody slips up a lot of times in cases like this, if there is an affair involved, suddenly that romance fizzles out after the, the affair is now a relationship or whatever it might be. And then one person tells the wrong person that they are involved in this contract killing love triangle thing. And, and if, you know, eventually you can build a case over time. So they're going to sit back and wait and those days turn into weeks they turn into months and they just keep coming up empty and what started as a strong and promising case became lost in the weeds of investigation and soon investigators were compelled to follow up on other leads including one where an inmate in an out-of-state prison wrote a letter to florida authorities stating a fellow inmate confessed to being the hitman that had been hired to kill marlene but while that confession yielded no evidence of the alleged hitman's involvement it did turn the spotlight back onto michael warren an attorney told investigators that in the year leading up to the murder, he had conversations with Michael about keeping his assets during the divorce. 
The lawyer told Michael that if Marlene was killed while they were still married, Michael would obviously be free of any obligations. The lawyer went as far as to advise Michael that if someone else killed Marlene, it would be hard for investigators to prove he was involved, and even more surprisingly, the lawyer admitted to telling Michael that if the other person committed the murder while wearing a clown costume, they would be very hard to identify and could even hide the gender of the killer. So I don't know why this lawyer was felt compelled to tell investigators this. I know there's attorney-client privilege that if he had chosen to basically say, hey, what Michael and I talked about was between us there's nothing that the investigators could do at that point maybe this was somebody that michael had wronged in some way during the time since this information was relayed and marlene's murder maybe this guy had a a guilty conscience about what what he told michael and what he ended up seeing happen to marlene i guess i i just saw this article about what this lawyer said and based everything the lawyer told him was the path to getting out of the situation to up to and including the clown costume was what happened to Marlene. So this is going to cause investigators to take a very hard look into Michael's possible involvement. Again, they believe Sheila did the killing just because of the balloons and the clown costume and the rental car and how that all ties together. But they're trying to build this entire case, get all the evidence, get that full picture. We talk about those jigsaw puzzles. They've got some pieces in place, but they don't have the whole picture. So they're going to go into the finances at the used car dealership because it would have been easy for someone who ran a used car dealership and regularly dealt with large transaction and cash to hide payments for a contract killing than someone with only personal bank accounts. So when we have a contract killing, somebody is going to pay somebody 20 grand to kill somebody else. If that person has no business, all they have is personal bank accounts and police get access to those bank accounts, if you see a withdrawal of cash of 20 grand or four transactions of five grand, whatever it might be, that's gonna look really suspicious. But if you've got a business that constantly takes in large amounts of cash or, or, or checks and pays out large amounts of, of cash or checks, uh, they pick up used cars from auctions, They there's gonna be a large transaction history of things in the range of 10 20 grand all the time it's going to be pretty easy to hide a transaction to another party for a contract killing in those business transactions and so they're going to look really close at everything that's going on with his used car dealership and they're going to find out not going to be evidence linking michael to the murder but they are going to uncover several illegal practices that included tampering with motor vehicle odometers and related financial crimes so Michael is charged with several white-collar crimes and served four years in a minimum security prison from 1993 to 1997. His sentence was considered well above normal guidelines and was believed to have been part of the justice system's attempts to keep him incarcerated while they gathered more evidence of the involvement in his wife's murder. And we do see this from time to time. We see cases where law enforcement has a strong belief that somebody is involved in a serious crime such as a homicide, they can't prove that, but they can find some other smaller crime that'll put that, this person in prison for a while. Hopefully during their time in prison, they've got nothing else to do. Either they make the, a phone call to the wrong person that's recorded, or they tell the wrong person in jail something that they did. That person turns into a jailhouse snitch that is trying to get time off their sentence by reporting this to authorities they become a, a witness to testify against michael there's there's reasons why 
they pushed so hard to have him incarcerated and probably why the judge sent him away for more time than he would have normally have gotten. But despite their best efforts, he's not going to, this, or this, this, despite their best efforts, this is not going to work. There's no further information and the case goes cold. And so Michael's going to get released and he's going to seek a new life and stay out of the eyes of investigators. And there the case is going to sit on the shelves, talked about in true crime lore. And while many investigators knew that Sheila and Michael were involved in the murder, there was no new evidence that emerged to strengthen the case. And then during this time period, while the case is cold in 2002, the couple who denied having an affair in 1990 wed in 2002 in Las Vegas. While office romances and marriages do happen, many found it strange that two people at the center of a murder investigation would end up married 12 years later. I'm not saying it can't happen, but the likelihood of two people getting married 12 years after they worked together and didn't have any form of romantic relationship is definitely low enough to raise a lot of suspicion. And 12 years is a lot of time, and he's in prison for four of them. Is one of those things where, yeah, we know there was no relationship between us in 1990, but after I got out of prison in, in the late 90s, I looked up her phone number and called, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we start our relationship and decide to get married. Is that more believable than we had an affair in 1990, we had to keep it secret, work together to kill Marlene, keep that a secret, we had to stay away from each other to a certain degree, he goes off to prison, then when the heat's off, they get back together and get married. I mean, it's, that to me is way more believable, is a much more likely path than two people falling in love and getting married 12 years after they work together, and the guy spends four of those years in prison. However, investigators weren't even aware that the couple had been married, and then 12 years later, the case was reopened as part of a cold case grant. So this is now 2014. Fresh investigators are going to look into the crime and the related evidence with a fine-tooth comb, and that is when they found what they had been missing for almost 25 years. An investigator located a single human hair on the ribbon from the balloons. DNA testing had advanced enough to build a profile from the DNA on the hair, and the lab testing concluded that Sheila Warren could not be excluded as a donor of the hair. But the investigation faced a big problem. The evidence from the case had been collected in 1990, looked over by investigators, and no hair had been seen, and the items had been stored in bags that had deteriorated over the decades and likely as the result of being manipulated several times over the years. So this is something we haven't really talked about in almost 120 episodes in. Evidence packaging in crime scene is a very important but also very chaotic practice. Basically, evidence collection just like anything else in a government budget, you know, it's a finite resource. You don't have unlimited money to purchase top of the line evidence storage, top of the line evidence collection procedures. And there's a lot of cases that if you go back even further than the 90s, go back to the 60s and 70s, the evidence in those cases when DNA wasn't on people's minds, it's almost a miracle if anybody finds anything that still has DNA in it just because it was stored without that that thought process. Now, most people think of evidence and they think of things like plastic bags or, or different easy to collect and store items. Now, we did use plastic bags as, as crime scene techs for certain things like 
very small plastic bags for shell casings. These were not like your Ziploc bags. These were vapor barrier bags. They were a heavier plastic with an opening at the top. You put your piece of evidence in and then you use a heat press to seal that item below the opening. So now you've got a, an item sealed that's air locked into this little plastic bag. And we had all different sizes of these plastic bags. The problem with these plastic bags is you can't use them if the items you're collecting might have uh, biological stuff or might be wet. Because if you put a pair of wet sneakers into one of these plastic vapor barrier bags and then seal it shut with no air exchange and put that on a shelf for five years, or heck, for five months, you're going to come back to a science experiment inside that bag. There's going to be all types of mold and bacteria growth because the bacteria and mold, they're going to use whatever existing air is still in that bag when you seal it shut and they're going to sit at room temperature there's going to be no way for that moisture to escape that bag so you get basically an enclosed biological environment with everything that bacteria and different things need to grow mold and, and whatnot so when you have an item that has a potential for it have been wet or had biological fluids on it you have to put it in paper because paper breathes paper will allow that moisture to escape it's going to allow the item to dry out now in cases of extremely wet items uh, like cases where we took something out of a, a washing machine while it's still in the wash cycle because somebody's trying to cover up blood on their clothing or whatever it might be uh, we had large evidence dryers, basically hanging closets that were designed. It's a cabinet that will evap, like a giant beef jerky dehydrator, food dehydrator, that you could put items in. They had HEPA filters. They would just slowly remove all the moisture out of the air and all the moisture that's being expelled from these items. And eventually you end up with a, a dried item whether it be you know, wet jacket, shoes, whatever it might be. But you still aren't going to package that in plastic. You're, you're still going to put it in a paper bag because there's still the chance that there's moisture in that item. And if you need that evidence 10 years down the road, you don't want it to be destroyed by mold and bacteria. So the paper bags that we would use, I mean, you had paper envelopes, uh, not like a letter envelope, more like a manila envelope in different sizes. But then you basically just had your run-of-the-mill like lunch bag, paper lunch bag, to garbage bag, to much larger than garbage bag, paper bags. These are great, they're cheap, they're easy to store and transport and all that kind of stuff, but they're fallible, they're paper. They can break down over time. If they're handled too much, they're moved around too much, something gets set on top of them. If you've ever overloaded a grocery bag at a store, put too many cans in it, they can burst open. And from looking at the pictures online, there were a lot of issues with how these items were packaged and stored and just deteriorated over time. So of course the defense is going to look at this and raise two major objections. One is the fact that where did this hair come from? Because supposedly according to the reports of the crime scene technicians back in 1990 and the investigators, this thing was looked over and there was no hair on there. And then all of a sudden in, in 2015, or I think it was, or 2016, when they are re-looking at the evidence, they find this, this single hair that has DNA that, that can't be excluded as, as Sheila's. So, of course, the investigators are going to look at the condition of the bag, say, hey, is this an item that could have been cross-contaminated from the search of Sheila's apartment? Could one of her hairs have gotten into this bag during the evidence the second evidence processing, this, this later evidence processing. So 
while it is great evidence in terms of presenting to a jury, there's a lot of problems with with the evidence. And that's, again, it, we run into that even evidence that's processed in current, just because, again, it's it's resources are finite, budgets are finite. You're not going to get the, the best of the best storage bags and the best of the best places to store these. You have to work with what you have, and unfortunately, and sometimes that means your evidence gets compromised as a result. Now, they're not just going to have this new physical evidence. The investigators are going to want to look at some of this new information they're going to learn about the couple as they're investigating them now in, in 2014, 2015, 2016. So they're going to go to the couple's new hometown, which is in Virginia near the Tennessee border. There they talked with residents of the town and learned Sheila liked to go by the name Debbie, and her and Michael were known to be hardworking business owners. They owned and operated a fast food restaurant across the border in Tennessee, and when investigators talked with employees, they got mixed reviews. While some said the couple were great to work for, others stated that the woman they knew as Debbie had a short fuse. One witness even told investigators that one night Debbie got drunk and told them how she had dressed as a clown and killed a woman. There were even pictures employees have seen of Debbie dressed in a clown costume on a Halloween, a Halloween from years prior. And in one article that I read, and again, this isn't substantiated because it's only one article, it sounds like Sheila had spent some time either in the circus or doing some stuff with clowns prior to this killing. So she had kind of a history of the clown makeup and all that kind of stuff. So she had dressed up as a clown on Halloween since the killing, which you would kind of think would be something you wouldn't do if the, you're truly not involved in the murder and your now husband was once married to somebody killed by a clown. Again, it just, all of this circumstantial evidence, everything pointing towards their involvement. And investigators had other leads to follow up on as well. A deathbed confession from a man to his daughter was reported to have included information about a second getaway car that had been driven into a canal. This car was supposed to be the one that contained the clown costume and the murder weapon. Investigators searched the canal and did retrieve a car, but it was determined to have been stolen in 1987, not related to the murder, and did not contain any evidence from the crime. The witness told investigators that they found the wrong car, and while no reporting on additional searches could be found, there's also no report of any related vehicle being located. So this is another one of those situations where you can have somebody say, hey, that stolen car is in a canal or in a lake somewhere and it costs a lot of money to do this recovery operation and send divers down and tow this vehicle out and and search it and do all that kind of stuff and then you find out it's the wrong car again i don't know if they went back and did another search and didn't locate anything or if they just said it's too much so but with the DNA evidence and all the circumstantial evidence from both 1990 and in the years following, investigators presented the case to prosecutors in 2017. Prosecutors then convened a grand jury, and the grand jury elected to indict Sheila Warren for the first-degree murder of Marlene Warren. Marlene Warren. So, again, this is how the behind-the-scenes process works. Investigators, crime scene technicians, they build the case through evidence, uh, witness testimony, that kind of stuff, they present it to whatever version of their prosecution office is, depending on the level of crime. It could be a district attorney, a county attorney, depending on geographically. That prosecutor then is going to make the choice. If they think they have a slam dunk case, 
in some states, they can just choose to go ahead and charge the person. In other states, depending on the level of crime, especially in cases where there's potentially a capital murder case, a lot of the times there's a requirement for one of these grand juries. A grand jury is a, as we've talked about before, a room filled with regular everyday people on jury duty that are being presented a case. There is no defense there. There is no defense attorney there. They can basically say whatever they want to a certain degree because those grand jury rooms are, or the grand jury process is a sealed process. But all they're trying to do is present evidence to people and get a feel for whether these people believe there's enough evidence for this to go to trial. If they believe that, if they think the evidence is strong against the person, they vote to indict. Now that person is going to be charged with the murder. So an arrest warrant was issued for Sheila, and she was pulled over and arrested in 2017 for the then 27-year-old homicide case. It is alleged that when she was arrested, she asked if her husband was under arrest as well. The original infamy of the case came flooding back after the arrest, but washed away due to years of court battle over discovery, evidence, and witness location. The defense made several allegations against the investigators of tampering with the evidence to fabricate a case, and Sheila professed her innocence while sitting in jail for five years. Finally, with the start of the capital murder trial in sight, a surprise plea agreement deal was announced to the public. Sheila would admit to the murder in exchange for the death penalty being removed and the charges being reduced to second-degree murder. Without a significant criminal history, Sheila was looking at around 10 to 15 years in prison for the crime, but had already served five and would be eligible for release in 10 months to two years from the acceptance of the plea deal. While many were angered at the seeming lack of justice, Joseph Ahrens, Marlene's son, had been approached by prosecutors before the deal and had agreed to the terms. It's likely the prosecution knew the case would be a hard one to achieve a unanimous guilty verdict, and there were still several issues with witness testimony and the evidence, including the chain of custody for key items of evidence was broken, and the only person who could testify in order to reestablish the chain was deceased. So chain of custody is a huge deal with evidence. You have to prove that that item came from the scene of a crime, was transported in a safe and secure operation back to some place where it is then placed into a secure facility. And you have a log of every time that item was taken out, looked at, what was done to it was put back. If there is a point in which you can't account for that item, you can reestablish that in court by having somebody testify, hey, I was the evidence technician in charge of that item. I know for a fact it was in the refrigerator. I don't know why it's not on the log, or I know for a fact that the item was removed during a building remodel and taken somewhere else. But when that person who did that or was responsible for that is now deceased, the, it opens the chance for the, the defense to say, during this unknown dark time where this evidence is unaccounted for, something happened to it. So there's, there's still so many issues with this case that's why there's a sweetheart deal and the prosecutors don't want to risk losing the case altogether. And instead of facing the stress of going through the trial, it's also likely that Marlene's family and prosecutors felt this was the safest path to some form of justice for Marlene and this terrible and tragic story would finally have an end. As a part of the plea agreement, the judge sentenced Sheila to 12 years in prison and credited her with five and a half years she's already served. The sentence was handed down in April of 2023, and Sheila will be eligible for release within the next two years. There are many who believe true justice has not been served in this case. Not only did Sheila get a sweetheart deal and has shown no remorse for taking someone's life so callously, but Michael is also believed to be the mastermind behind the killing and has faced no prosecution for anything other than the illicit business practices. Sadly, this is yet another case where the details of the case and the publicity overshadow the true victim. 
Marlene was said to be a loving mother, and by all accounts, she just wanted what we all want, which is the best life for ourselves and our family. She lost her life because the man she married was more concerned about money and his ability to live his life obligation-free, and has spent the last 33 years with little to no justice for his actions. Both Sheila and Michael will one day face true justice for what they did on this earth, but in the meantime, I take small solace in the reporting that Joseph was able to offer an impactful victim statement during Sheila's sentencing and then visit his mother's grave and tell her that after a long wait, there was finally some level of justice for what happened. But that is the story of Marlene Warren. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. So that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.